Awesome. I was so glad they were able to play this week. I enjoy when they do get up here and they lead us in worship. Praise God. One more announcement. Anyone interested in joining the church in membership, you're interested in kind of crossing that dotted line and being in on membership at the church, there are applications on the foyer table. The one uh, condition is you must have attended Bread of Life Church for at least six months, the last six months faithfully and consistently, okay? That's all we ask. And if you're interested, you have questions, just let me know, okay? Also, we're out in the parking lot. Be careful when you walk, walk to your car. Be careful going down the slope in the front. Don't go bombing down like it's July, okay? It was kind of in between. We didn't scrape it, have the plow come, but uh, just be careful, all right? Joel's waving at me. Hi, Joel. All right. We won't look if you get up. <laughs> look at him. <laughs> Praise God. Exodus chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, everyone. Exodus chapter 1. I'm going to give it the old college try in the next three hours of preaching, okay? <laughs> See. I'll go as long as I can. Exodus chapter 1. I feel like I have a word that I, I pray will minister to your heart this morning. I pray it challenges you. I pray it comforts and I pray it disturbs in, in one sense. Okay? These are the names of the sons of Israel who went into Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Jebulun, Zebulun. And Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70, and all Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with the forced labor, and they built Python and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, kind of like the early church, except with the gospel. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor and brick and mortar, with all kinds of work in the fields and all their hard labor. The Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shiprah, that name means beautiful, by the way, and pua, which means blossom or like a flower. When you help the Hebrew woman in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. It's going on in China, by the way. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? 
The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased, became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. I love that. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but every girl live. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to his son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she'd hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered, and the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of water. It's no wonder that Moses was such a basket case. (laughs) (laughs) Title of my sermon this morning, I feel, fits narrative with the great faith of these midwives and also these parents and how their great faith was rewarded by God and how he blessed them so much because of their great faith and their ability to not fear man, but to fear God. And the title of the sermon this morning is When So Much Depends on So Little. When So Much Depends on So Little. Somebody made this quote one time, but I think it's similar to this narrative I want to share with you this morning. The biggest events in history sometimes turn on the smallest hinges. The biggest events in history sometimes turn on the smallest hinges. Kaiser Wilhelm II was king of Prussia and was the last German emperor. He ruled from June 1888 to November 1918. He was ambitious, he was volatile, and his aggressive policies, some historians say, is what perhaps incited World War I for even beginning which some historians believe was a very avoidable war. Back in 1889, when he was in office for just one year, there was a special event taking place in Europe called Buffalo Bill's Wild West Show. And they were traveling through Europe, and they made a stopover in Berlin, and when Wilhelm heard they were coming, he was all excited and attended the show. At one point in the show, as was the custom, Annie Oakley would do all sorts of tricks with her Colt 45, including asking for a volunteer to hold a cigar in which she would shoot the ashes off that cigar. She would even ask for somebody to put that cigar in their mouth, and she would shoot the ashes right off. 
Now, nobody volunteered. No one ever volunteered. So her hapless husband was always called upon to stand there and hold a cigar while she shot the ashes off. She gets to this show and makes this humorous announcement, asks for a volunteer, and all of a sudden a very important person gets out of the VIP box, makes his way down into the center of the arena. It was Kaiser Wilhelm himself. When the German police saw him, they tried to stop him, but maybe trying to prove what a man he was and a brave heart he was, he offered to hold a cigar. Now, Annie Oakley says, I can't back out now. I've got to save face. So she marched off her, you know, required paces. She turned around and aimed her pistol at the cigar ashes being held by the King of Prussia. One historian described what he witnessed that day, sweating profusely under her buckskin and regretting that she had consumed more than her usual amount of whiskey the night before, Annie raised her cold, took aim, and blew away the ashes from Wilhelm's cigar. Historian goes on to wonder how the world might have been different if she had missed the cigar and creased his head instead, not that he wanted an innocent person to be shot, of course, but wondering, as historians do, if we might have avoided World War I if she had been a worse shot on that day, just perhaps a little bit more whiskey. <laughs> One year after the war began, Annie Oakley actually wrote Wilhelm a letter requesting if she could have a second shot. <laughs> yes, the biggest events sometimes turn on the smallest hinges. In the 1930s, a portly Englishman was hit by a taxi cab in New York City. And one wonders if this portly Englishman named Winston Churchill, by the way, if he had died from, those, from that, being hit by that taxi cab instead of just you know, having injuries how that might have changed World War II, and especially for the British people. Especially for the British people. Sometimes the biggest events in human history turn on the smallest hinges. And what's true for human history can also be true for our lives. Just one little degree off, one little decision over there, one little prayer over there, and everything can change on a dime. One little decision. One little decision in our lives. There were three men that were hemming down and happened upon this raging wild river, and they had no way to get across. So one man prays a prayer, says, Lord, give me the strength to cross this river, and poof, suddenly God gave him strong legs and strong arms, and he swam across in about three hours. The next guy prayed. His prayer was just a little bit different, he prayed, God, give me the strength and the ability to cross this river. And poof, he was given a rowboat, and he rowed across this river in about two hours. Third man, seeing all that, prayed a prayer as well. He said, God, give me the strength and give me the ability and give me the intelligence to get across this river. And poof, God actually turned him into a woman. <laughs> and the women looked at the map and proceeded to walk across the bridge. <laughs> One more quote, and I'll stop, I promise. 
The secret of change is to focus all your energy not on fighting the old you, but on building the new. I like to say it this way. The secret of change is to focus all your energy not on fighting the old you, but building the new you. The new you. Are you building the new you or are you fighting the old you? Are you fighting the old you or building the new you? You say, what's the difference? In Philippians 3.12, the Apostle Paul tells us, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection, but I keep working toward the day when I will finally be all that Christ Jesus saved from me and wants me to be. No, dear friends, I'm still not all I should be, but I am focusing all my energies on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I strain to reach the end of the race and receive the prize for which God is through Christ Jesus is calling us up to heaven. I have a confession to make. And when a minister has a confession to make, your ears should be perked up. Amen. I confess that in the early days of my Christianity, I spent way too much time focused on my past. Way too much time focusing my energies on my past. And I was building on the old Gary Collette. And the old me, the old me, see, I was building on the new me, but I was also had directives to God. By building on the new me, I was actually building on the old me because I would list a bunch of directives to God. Lord, I want you to change this. I want you to correct this. I want you to clean this. I want you to take away that. I want you to give me that. I want you to pour in this. I want you to do all that. Da, 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 da. And God's probably like, I was yawning up there in heaven, listening to my prayers. See, I scrambled everything because I wanted the new and improved Gary Collette. That's what I wanted. And my Christian life became nothing more than Christian calisthenics with no spiritual growth, no spiritual power, no spiritual change that I was looking for, just pure exhaustion, just frustration. See, I wanted God to iron out the wrinkles in my life. I wanted the Lord to iron out the wrinkles in all of my life. The thing is, is that God wasn't ironing the wrinkles. I was ironing the wrinkles. And worse than that, I was like a guy ironing his clothes while wearing them. Ah! <laughs> that was what was happening in my life. It's like ironing your clothes while wearing them. When you throw up a bunch of directives to God, change this, change this, change that, change that. If I'd only learned to surrender, and the word surrender means to give oneself up to the power of another. Someone once says surrender is the intersection between acceptance and change. If you are truly a born-again Christian, listen now, you are in a covenant relationship with God that's been ratified by the blood of Jesus. You are not in a contractual covenant. A contractual government Covenant is a legal document. It's, re- it, it's exchanging goods. It's uh, you scratch my back and I'll scratch your back. It has to do with mutual exchange. We are not in a contractual covenant with God. We are in a, we are in a covenant with God. A covenant with God. A covenant with God is, uh, is more fulfilling. It's more satisfying. The trouble is, though, it's risky because you are surrendered and you become more vulnerable, and the risk is like a person that's falling in love. 
And I'm not so sure I want to be vulnerable. I'm not so sure I want to let myself go. I'm not so sure I want to fall in love because it's too risky. That's the difference between contractual and covenant. And a covenant relationship with God is what will build the new you, not the contractual one. You see the difference, everyone? We're in a covenant relationship with God, a covenant relationship with God. And building the new you, you, easy for you to say, (laughs) requires one important ingredient, and that is faith. Faith, faith, faith. you got to have faith. And your faith, everyone, is built up this way, kind of like your muscles. When you exercise them, your muscles get built up. When you exercise faith through trials, through difficulties, through whatever comes hell or high water against you, Your faith, like muscles, is what trusts God to come through, to prove himself faithful, to provide the provision, to provide the answer, to bring his grace, to pull you through. Every time you exercise faith in the sense of all that's coming against you, you are building yourself up. You're building up your most holy faith in him. And it takes the trials and the difficulties And your resistance to those things by trusting in God is what's going to build your faith. However, faith is a forward-looking thing. That is where the energy is. It's up front. Your faith is up front. That's where the power is. It's straight ahead. It's faith, faith, faith. Paul came to understand this in his sordid, horrible past, which included trying to destroy the church. He said, I'm focusing all my energies on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. In Hebrews 11.1, it says, what is faith? It is the confident assurance that we hope for is going to happen. Forward, forward. It is evidence of the things we cannot yet see. Forward. God gave his approval to people in days of old because of their faith. Right now, Our faith is under assault. It's being tried. It's being tested. It's being, you know, picked at. It's being tried just like the days of old. And right now there is an aspect of our faith that I believe the church is going through and trying to believe God in through it all, and that is justice. Or the lack thereof. Justice. Now God's throne... It's made of justice and righteousness, the Bible said. But one of the things that God's people are struggling with, I'm struggling with, and I want you to see the prophet Jeremiah struggle with, is justice or the lack thereof. Listen carefully to the words of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 12 and and how he questions the Lord's justice or the lack thereof, he believes, And see, as a Christian today, if you haven't found yourself voicing or wanting to voice the same things Jeremiah does here. Lord, you always give me justice when I bring a case before you. Now, let me bring you this complaint. Why are the wicked so prosperous? Why are evil people so happy? You have planted them, and they have taken root and prospered. Your name is on their lips but in their hearts they give you no credit at all. But as for me, Lord, you know my heart. You see me and test my thoughts. And then he loses it here. Drag these people away like helpless sheep to be butchered. 
set them aside to be slaughtered. How long must this land weep? Even the grass in the fields has withered. The wild animals and birds have disappeared because of the evil in the land. Yet the people say the Lord won't do anything. Sound familiar? That the cry of our heart? Watch carefully Lord's answer to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 12, 5. Then the Lord replied to me, if racing against mere men makes you tired, how will you race against horses? If you stumble and fall on open ground, what will you do in the thickets near the Jordan? See, the prophet Jeremiah finds himself complaining about hardships and opposition coming against him, which is nothing compared to what's ahead. Nothing at all. And in the midst of this so-called hardship, God is asking him, how can you handle the big things down the road if you cannot even handle the smaller things right now? See, the same thing is asked of us today. God's focus was not on wicked Jeremiah or wicked, the wicked people. It was on his servant Jeremiah. And basically, we do, when we get into a place of suffering, we ask God, the same question that he's, asking God, that he's asking the Lord here, how can I get out of this? When in fact we should be saying, what can I get out of this? God's servants don't live by explanations. We live by promises. Now it may interest you to have an explanation. And it may satisfy your curiosity. And make you feel like you're smarter than the average bear to have the explanations. But God's people who stand on the promises are the ones who become built up and are the ones who become the servants of God Almighty. I know we would love explanations. We would love explanations from God. And that's what Jeremiah wants. But we're not here to get explanations. We're here to stand on the promises of God, which are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. John the Baptist had no explanation for Jesus and why he was inside the prison that day. Go and ask him, are you the one or should we ask another he wasn't called to explain him. He was just called to announce him. Yes. God's main priority for bringing us through hardships is to develop the character of Christ in every one of us so that we can handle what's coming down the road. We can handle what's coming down the pike. And that begins with us having forward-looking faith Amen. and a covenant relationship with God, not a contractual one. Not because I'm here because I need something. I'm here because God has done something. I'm here because I'm here to surrender myself to him who judges justly. He died for me on a cross. I'm willing to surrender. I'm willing to be vulnerable. I'm willing to risk it all for Jesus Christ because he gave it all for me. Amen? And that's how God is preparing disciples of Jesus right now. And right now, it may feel like you're racing against mere men, and we're all getting tired. And that's the goal of mere men, is to make us tired. But you ain't seen nothing yet, everyone. We're going to come to a place, and maybe we're getting there, where we're racing against horses. We're in the thickets of the Jordan. If you saw in our text the mere men that dealt ruthlessly with the Israelites to make them tired, that whole thing was to bring them under control, to bring them into a place of submission, to make them tired. I don't know about you, but I see very similarities in what's going on today. Yes. And America has some similarities to Israel. We've been called to be this light on a hill, a beacon on a hill to the surrounding nations. 
America has given more in missions to, than any country in the world since the beginning of missions. America is meant to be this light, meant to be a place of hope, change. That's what the Israelites were called to do as well. There's similarities that are happening here. In Exodus 1.8, that a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Oh, what are we going to do? We got we to gotta do some crowd control here. We got to do some numbers. Well, I think, well, I think, well, I think, I know. Let's deceive them. Let's trick them. Exodus 1.10, come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they're getting, you know, alarmed at them. They're getting suspicious of them. So let's surveil them. We don't want any uprisings, especially in our military. I know, too, let's make their life miserable. Let's make it unhappy. Let's make them work harder and harder and harder and harder for less and less and less and less. And instead of us serving them, let's make them serve us so that we can build what we want to build. Exodus 1.11, so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they build Python. Python, by the way, means city of justice. How can they be building a city of justice when there's so much injustice going on? And Ramesses, that means child of the sun, as store cities for Pharaoh, but the more they oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. The Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They're becoming alarmed. There's too many of them. We don't want civil disobedience. We don't want them to think that there's freedom. Let's keep weakening them, weakening them, weakening them, weakening them. You know, let's crush their spirits. Crush their spirits. Bring them down. Keep them under. If they submit... And when they submit, we'll have more control. Exodus 1.14, they made their lives bitter with hard labor and brick and mortar. And with all kinds of work in the fields and all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. They're beating them down. Seems to be no letting up. Keep the foot on the throttle. Keep it on their necks. Let them lose their resolve. I got it. Let's go after the most precious commodity at all, of all. Let's go after the children. Yeah, I like it. Psh. Exodus one twenty-two. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the now, but let every girl live. Do you think that's the plan today? To wear you down? To weary you? To break your spirit? To break your resolve? to break your faith, to push you down and down and down so that you work harder and harder and harder and harder and harder and harder and harder for less and less and less and less and less and be happy about it. Be happy about it. Am I making sense this morning? Okay. Can we get into our sermon now? I'm ready to preach. All right. All right. I don't know if I've ticked you off or not. Amen? See, when a dog wags his tail, a dog is happy. When a cat wags his tail, it's unhappy. So I don't know if I'm seeing cats or dogs out there. <laughs> Amen? I can't tell the difference, Brian. It's, 
I'm seeing cats. <laughs> Number one point, and we'll go right through these, I promise. God will always have himself a remnant who fear him more than they do man. God will always have himself a remnant to fear him rather than man. And that choice is before us right now, everybody. Right now. Exodus 1.17, the midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Hebrews 11.23, by faith Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of what? The king's edict. They were not afraid of it. Peter Cartwright was a 19th century circuit-riding Methodist preacher who wasn't afraid to tell it like it is. He was in a service one Sunday morning when President Andrew Jackson arrived at the service to the surprise of everybody. And when he arrived, Cartwright was told, President Jackson's here, watch what you say. Jackson gets up to the pulpit and says these words, I understand that Andrew Jackson is here, I've been asked to guard my remarks, but I want you to know that unless Andrew Jackson repents, he's going to go straight to hell. <laughs> and when he said that, the congregation's like, oh my goodness, what's Jackson going to do now? After the service, Jackson was shaking hands with Cartwright and said these words, Sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could whip the world. <laughs> you know, there's many memes out there for what the church is supposed to be. We have been likened to a hospital where the wounded and the sick can find healing. We've been likened to a family where you're accepted and you're loved. We've been likened to a school where the word of God is taught. But these metaphors as good as they are, really don't capture the essence of what I believe Jesus' design was for the church. He said, on this rock, I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail, which tells me the church is like an energized army that's supposed to engage and defeat the kingdom of darkness so as to advance the kingdom of God. Amen? I like what the songwriter and worship leader Brian Dorkson puts it. He says, becoming a worshiper means becoming a warrior. And by toning that down, we have sent men and women away from the church in droves. It's time to call them back. Yes. We are worshiping warriors. Yes. That is, as warriors who are surrendered to God, warriors who know that their authority comes because they are under authority, warriors willing to wait even when everyone else is running ahead, or warriors willing to act decisively in obedience to their commanding officer, Jesus Christ, even when everybody else is lagging behind in disobedience. God wants to give you the courage to stand up to the evils of our day and to the arrogance of man. And the arrogance of man requires you to have faith. That's what faith does. It gives you backbone. It gives you courage. And courage is contagious. By faith, be bold enough to obey God despite what your friends say. By faith, have the courage to do what's right, even if the whole world does what's wrong. By faith, take a risk. Stand out for Christ. Take a step in Christ. Young person, that means you choose to remain pure, yes. even though it might mean losing a boyfriend and a girlfriend. Businessman, choose to run your business with integrity and character, even if it means losing a customer or two. All of us, it means to choose to obey Christ, no matter what anybody else thinks, 
no matter what of the opinion of the world, by faith do you, what your commanding officer commands you to do. By faith, obey God. Even if you're the only one, say, I will. Polycarp was a bishop. He was a Christian bishop of Smyrna who died a martyr. He was bound and burned at the stake, then stabbed several times when the fire failed to consume his body. Polycarp refused to worship the Roman emperor even when it meant his death. Eighty and six years I have served him, Polycarp says, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? Bring forth what you will when you strip away all of our money, our belongings, our education, our health, when you take away our beauty and success and fame, when skin color and ethnicity and language is set aside, when all of us are stripped down to our naked souls and we stand at the brink of eternity, the only thing that matters is our faith. That's all that separates us from those who will perish. I have faith that Jesus Christ is God's one and only son, that he was born of a virgin, that he lived a sinless life, that he died on the cross Friday afternoon and burst out of the tomb Sunday morning. I believe that he is seated at the right hand of my father and that he's coming back one day to take me home to heaven. I cannot prove one part of that beyond all doubt. I have accepted all of it through faith. I have no backup plan. I have nowhere else to turn. I'm putting all my eggs in one basket. And if the atheists are right, then I'll just end up as fertilizer. But by faith, I believe that Jesus is right and that one day I'm going to live forever with him. Who's going with me? And folks, that kind of faith doesn't come but by forward-looking faith. Point number two, this kind of forward-looking faith first begins in the home. It begins in the home. Exodus 2.1. Now a man of house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she'd hid him for three months. Exodus 6 and verse 20 names Moses' parents as Abraham and Jehoshaphat, and that they should even wed. During such difficult times, even that was a step of faith. Here the Bible says when she saw that he was a fine child, she'd hid him for three months. The Hebrew word for fine used here is the common word for good, a tov, T-O-V. This verse combines tov, which she saw, which likens to God's description of his own creation in Genesis, that he created everything and saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. The child was fine. The child was beautiful. The child was healthy. Compare all that to how Rodney Dangerfield, comedian Dangerfield, described his birth. He says, you know, when babies are born, doctors look them over, slap their booty, you know, make them cry. When I was born, the doctor looked me over and slapped my mother in the face. (laughs) It was by faith that Moses was hidden by his parents. That was just a little digression. (laughs) By faith, because he saw he was no ordinary child. That word beautiful there is beauty was regarded by the ancients as a sign of divine favor. There's got to be something going on here. These parents believe that God had something more for their son than death. They believed there was a greater purpose. They thought that he was, you know, there was something about him. That's what Janice and I felt when Lucas came into our lives. And we adopted him. There was just something about him. Janice 
fell in love with him first. I really didn't even meet him. She came home and said, the son, it's about this little boy. I don't know what it is. And finally, she came home and said, you're going to meet him. Finally, I met him and said, you're right. There's something about him. Before you know it, our hearts were there. Our hearts took him in. Our hearts adopted him. His mother died. His real mother, biological mother, died in a fire when he turned just before he turned one years old. He was destined to be in our home. And these parents just see destiny written all over Moses. You know, parents never know what God sees in each child that's born. That's why it's important for the parents to raise their children in the fear of God. You cannot pass on your faith like you can family traits, but you certainly can create an atmosphere of faith at home and be godly examples to your kids, thereby increasing the percentages of them staying with God, coming back to God when they grow up to become, you know, older. Point number three, forward-looking faith in the home will always bring the providence and favor out of heaven. Exodus 2, 3, but when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it, put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. A sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. I think, you know, we look at, as a mother, can you imagine this, moms? Can you picture yourself doing this? Can you do this? Would you do this? Can you picture this mother saying, oh my goodness, what am I going to do now? I don't believe she was like that. I don't believe she was, you know, in any way frantic and, you know, worried. I see just tremendous courage and a woman of remarkable faith here. One commentator said, Yohebit's actions are an ironic reversal of Abraham's in Genesis 22. Abraham obeys God's order to kill Isaac, yet Isaac is spared. Yochebet's, uh, I know I've been saying the name differently. Yochebet disobeys Pharaoh's orders to kill Moses, yet Moses is spared. In one incident, God honors obedience, in the other, he honors defiance. You know, that's true. Obedience to God's word matters, that even if you have to be in defiance to the law of the land, and so what? So be it. It took real faith for this Hebrew mother to put a child in that river, the very place where the young boys were being eaten by crocodiles. In a literal sense, she did exactly what Pharaoh said to do. She put her son in the river, but she put him in a waterproof basket. And basket in Hebrew is the word tabat. And the only other place that it appears in Genesis 6 through 8, where it's translated over and over again as the ark. And just like God built a great big ark so that eight people and a bunch of animals and pairs could survive the flood to the saving of his people, now he's going to build a little ark for one baby to be saved for the saving of his people. The baby Jesus faced the exact same thing as Moses. There was a tyrannical king that said, I want all the boys up to age two to die, all the boys to be killed. And a whole bunch of boys were killed. And a whole bunch of boys in the days of Moses were killed. They were murdered. They were thrown to the crocodiles. But his parents, Mary and Joseph, believed they fled to Egypt just as God saved Moses in Egypt. God saved his people just as God saved the baby Jesus in Egypt. He saved his people. Do you see what's going on here, everyone? When we may not know when so much depends on so little, but God does. And when there's faith in the home, it brings and opens up the providence and the favor of God out of heaven. This Jewish mother must have felt much like Trishinda Fox did 
when she dropped her one-month-year-old boy, Eric, from a third-story window to save him from a fire in their apartment. It happened in December of 2005 when Fox's apartment in the Bronx was engulfed in flames. And there was onlookers down at the bottom watching as she opened the window and she's holding her baby out. Picture this now. Third, three stories down, these onlookers are watching and they're looking up at her and all of a sudden the smoke comes billowing out the window all around her and she has a choice to make. She's got a one-month-year-old baby boy and when she let go, she let her baby tumble three stories down into the hands of the onlookers. The onlooker that caught the baby is a man named Felix Vasquez, a housing authority employee who just happens to be the catcher on a local baseball team and a trained lifeguard who immediately applied mouth-to-mouth resuscitation to the baby and saved the baby's life. Moments later, Trishinda was rescued by the firefighters, came down, reunited, reunited with her baby boy, Someone asked her about the painful decision to drop her baby from the window. She says this, I prayed that someone would catch him and save his life. I said, God, please save my son. And God did that the moment that she let go. All right? Don't miss this last point. I'm almost done, I promise. You know, her decision to lay Moses in that basket was difficult. Because in some way she was giving up. And from a thousand feet, it looks like she's giving up. Does she struggle with maternal guilt that she was abandoning her child by putting him in the basket? If you know somebody with addiction, somebody that's struggling with addiction, it can be especially hard to let them go. Dropping them off at Teen Challenge, all right, refusing to give them money has all the earmarks that uh, we're giving up on them. We're giving up. And the addicted person may even try to pull on the heartstrings and say, if you love me, you wouldn't leave me right now. So here comes the fine line between a hand up and a hand out, between empowering and enabling. My last point in number four is this one. Yohebet was not giving something up. She was giving something over. See, to give something up means abandonment, like a deadbeat dad walking out of this child. But to give something over means to entrust that particular thing or that particular person into the hands of Almighty God. See, she gave over her son into the hands of Almighty God, and her son became Israel's greatest liberator, which proves one important thing, everybody, that whatever you give over to God will become even greater than what it would morph into had it remained locked up within your grasp. Martin Luther once said, I have held many things in my hands, and I have lost them all. But whatever I placed in God's hand, that I still possess. I love what Mandy Hale said. Once you let go, something magical happens. You give God room to work. Amen? Amen. For you, battling with besetting sins, battling with addiction, battling with whatever you're going through, battling with praying and believing for an unsaved loved one, don't give up, give over. Give over. Give over. Don't say, I give up. Don't say, I'm going to give up.
Don't say, I'm going to give it up. That's just resolutions that you can't keep. God says, I want you to hand it over and let go. Let go. Let it go into my hands. Give your addiction to him. Give whatever's besetting you to him. He can turn it. The, the tabernacle called the mishtan was made not of heavenly stuff, not made of the stuff of heaven. It was made with cloths of this earth, jewelry of this earth. It was made with all the stuff of the earth, and it was brought for the fabrication of this temple that became the holy presence of God, which tells me that whatever is of earth, when it's handed over to God, it becomes holy. It becomes empowered by his glory. It becomes empowered by his preeminence, his power. That's what forward-looking faith is, everybody. That's what forward-looking faith is. I have no idea. We are being worn out. We are being tired. We are being, as Americans, we are being worn out. We got three wars that could possibly break out at any moment. One in Ukraine, one over Taiwan with China, and one Israel and Iran. All it takes is one trigger, happy trigger finger, and boy, off we go to the races. Are you ready for that? As Janice said so wonderfully at the very beginning, to me set the table, are you free in Christ? Are you finding your security in Christ? Are you finding your freedom in Jesus Christ? Instead of as Americans getting all upset about your freedoms that are getting lost as Americans, yes, they are. And we should say something about that. But the freedom that is in Christ Jesus is more important today than your freedom as Americans. 2 Timothy 1.9, I close. It is God who saved us and chose us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan long before the world began, to show his love and kindness to us through Christ Jesus. And now he has made all of this plain to us by the coming of Christ Jesus, our Savior, who broke the power of death and showed us the way to everlasting life through the good news. And God chose me to be a preacher, an apostle, teacher of this good news, and that is why I'm suffering here in prison, but I am not ashamed of it, for I know the one in whom I trust, and I'm sure that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until the day of his return. Let's stand together, everybody. Hallelujah. Praise you, Jesus. Glory to Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Glory to Christ. I can't